Hey, it's Sean, or Colonel, whatever you prefer. And this is my my contribution to the Parched Party podcast. And if you love if you love my podcasts, there's plenty more on my Colonel Sean podcast or on the Hardy and Sons podcast, which, if somehow you're unfamiliar, is our chapter by chapter review of the Hardy Boys books. But because I have other podcasts. Coming up with an idea for something for this podcast that wasn't just like something that I would do on a different podcast was a bit of a challenge, but it presented the opportunity to share with you the dilemma that I'm having telling a story. And this is the story of my trip to Burkina Faso in November of 2018. The reason that this is a challenge is because, as will become apparent as I give you the elements of the story, um, and ask for your help shaping it into something that is a shareable story. The producer that hired me, I'm incredibly grateful. This was a pivotal experience in my life, um, and I, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to have gotten to go and for him taking a chance on me and bringing me along for this. But there were a lot of things that went very wrong, which point to what could seem like a failure on that producer's part. And so for that reason, I have never shared this story publicly. I've never made a YouTube video about it. I never put it on my blog because I don't want it to reflect publicly any any negative connotation about this individual. It's not how I like to construct my content and I don't want to just bash somebody or, or tear them down or even have it look like it's partially negative. For that reason, I've, I've kept pretty quiet about this because there's many elements of this that I think are easily traceable to mistakes that were made on the planning side of things um, that had a negative impact on me, and so I don't want to dwell on those. So without further ado, I present to you the elements of the Burkina Faso story. Now, as a prologue, you have to understand my mindset. This is November of 2018. My career is blowing up. In February of 2018, I hired my first crew. I met people that I could trust, and it just went gangbusters. And I was able to, instead of just shooting everything by myself, which I had done for 10 years, I now had a crew of three or four people, and I was able to hire them. And we were making money and making awesome content and making more connections. And it was just things were going really, really well. And then on the personal side of things... I was just, I mean, I'd been married for a year. It, it was awesome. Things were going well. Jesse and I had, in October, gone to London and Amsterdam for two weeks. We had been traveling that summer together, going to ultimate tournaments, um, and down to my parents have a lake house down there. It was just awesome. Like I'm, I'm flying high. I cannot be taken down. Or so I thought. Now, what happened, so I have to fly from St. Louis to New York, and I fly into LaGuardia, and I'm not going to spend any time talking about the comical nightmare that was my brief experience in LaGuardia, but suffice it to say it was awful. Um, I get picked up uh, by the producer, I spend the night in a hotel with him, and then we meet the uh, client, who it turns out, and I'm not sure at which point along the way I found out that the main engineer, so, so this project is, let me back up for one second. The project is described to me as this. In Burkina Faso, we are going to some very, very poor sections on the edge, on the, on the edges of the desert and helping 
these engineers have designed this irrigation system where they pump water up into a tower and then use gravity to extend pipes down into the ground and out across these fields because the alternative is that there's just one well and to grow a lot of crops especially during the dry season you need to pump water into a bucket and carry it and water a, a flower they don't have hoses and if they did there's nothing they'd have to have somebody pumping constantly into the hose so with this system they can pump water up into a tower fill that tower with water and therefore pressure and then they bury pipes in the ground so that they can spread out and have spigots throughout a garden and it helps people grow food and not die during the off season uh during the dry season which is about nine months of the year in burkina um so the main engineer for this it turns out is the producer's father and so our crew is my producer my producer's father uh and this guy named jack and jack was is at the time he was in his late 70s and just a, a workhorse of a man who was loving every second of this uh, both he and the lead engineer had been to, to burkina and mali dozens of times doing this over the course of 30 40 years they had they, they knew the area they were very comfortable there um, so that is that is our crew it, it's it's the four of us and we get there um, and we'll meet someone named john but before we get there we have to get there and so we meet jack and the producer's father at jfk and board our flight to Charles de Gaulle airport in in Paris and so we we make it to Paris and it is in Paris our next flight is to Ghana and then from Ghana we'll connect to Burkina Faso and I did not know that the Air France flies this flight but Air France Air France will not stay in Burkina overnight because it's too dangerous so they fly between Ghana and Paris but what they do is they fly from Paris to Ghana to Burkina and then right back to Paris that night, or they do the opposite, and they fly from Paris to Burkina to Ghana, and then back to Paris, um, and they can stay in Ghana and switch crews in Ghana. So we're in Paris, and I'm learning about this, and everyone is sleeping peacefully, taking airport naps, which I have not yet learned how to do. And it is, I don't know, about an hour before we board our flight. We had like an eight-hour layover. It was pretty rough. Um, and I find out that Jesse and I are pregnant. And without this news, I'm not sure that I would have survived the trip. I just don't know that I would have had it in me to persevere, but alas, I did. Um, spoiler alert, I lived to tell the story, or at least to lay out the elements for you. So the other thing that you need to know before we, we get into Burkina is I have an anxiety disorder. Historically speaking, travel has triggered it when I'm just someplace that's different uh, and it turns out it is absolutely catalyzed by dehydration where when you're going somewhere where the average daily temperature is going to be 114 degrees Fahrenheit that's going to become an issue a little bit but um, I am still eating decently snacking here and there I have a collection of cliff bars uh, which will turn out to be almost uh, the only thing I eat for the first half of every day while I'm there um, for a number of reasons. But while on the plane from Paris to Ghana to Burkina, I am seated next to the producer's father. And the producer's father was born Jewish, raised Jewish, and somewhere later in his life 
converted to Jesus, uh, to, to Christianity, uh, evangelical Christianity. And it turns out that if you're seated on a plane next to an evangelical Christian for like nine hours, they are going to talk to you about Jesus. And if not for my own Lutheran education, regardless of where I stand now uh, with regard to religion and spirituality, I was glad that I was able to allay some of the lectures by finishing some sentences, finishing some Bible stories that I was familiar with um, to at least put up enough of a defense that I need not be converted as I am already already sort of in the camp and I I get it. But this will become a, a theme throughout that each day will begin with some sort of uh, Christianity. Um, and the reason this is important is because the project was described as these, these wells. We were going to put in eight of these irrigation systems. Uh, and I was told that we were putting these in at schools to help um, the teachers grow enough food to feed the students. That is what the project was described to me, beginning and end. It turns out that when we land and we are picked up by what has uh, been so far just told to me as our security um, and and guide and translator, this guy named John. Um, John runs an evangelical Christian missionary, and all of the work that we are doing is going to be at schools and churches, um, and we are staying at a school where they... It's not a. It's not like an elementary school. It's a school where adults learn to be pastors, uh, which is, which is fine. Except, Burkina Faso is a predominantly Muslim country, and without painting with a broad brush about the religion, the experience in Burkina, for the Burkina Bay, which is what you call people from Burkina Faso, um, Burkina Bays who are Christian. Are, are persecuted. And having a Christian church in these small little villages as they're, they're spread up and down throughout the desert, routinely these churches are broken into and vandalized. People light fires in the churches and burn the books. They defecate on the floors and smear it on the wall. They, they write threats in blood, uh, in animal blood on the walls. Um, it, is a, it is a dangerous place to be a Christian. And I think that that's admirable to an extent. However, it is something that I wish I would have known prior to signing up for this. If they were like, hey, do you want to go to a predominantly Muslim country and serve communities who are under a very serious, violent threat, a very imminent and violent threat on a regular basis? Do you want to hang out with them? Uh, I would have had some different thoughts. I would have prepared a little differently. And I think... I would have been in a different spot emotionally to understand the pregnancy in the light of, of that context. So I, I land in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso. We land late at night and we make it to this uh, safe house for Christian missionaries. And we, we meet John and his wife. Um, oh, shoot. I wish I could remember her name. Um, it's a wonderful, they're, they're originally from Georgia, but they've lived in Burkina for like 30 years. Um, and he was born in Cote d'Ivoire before that. Um, so the missionary being a missionary is deeply rooted in John's family and his wife. So French is the national language in Burkina Faso. And so I tried my hardest to use Duolingo to learn French. Uh, before I went, and it turns out I was able to learn just enough to say, like, hi, how are you? Have a good day. But 
when you get to Burkina, you realize that no one speaks French. I don't know why it's the national language. Well, it's the national language because of colonization many, many years ago. But no one actually speaks it other than also to say, hello, how are you, good day. And then everyone speaks Togo um, or, oh, shoot, I forgot the other one. But there's there's a couple of local African dialects that, that are spoken and that's what everyone speaks. And so we had John who spoke French and who spoke, spoke Togo and this other language that starts with a B. And then when whenever we got to these little villages, we would speak to John. John would speak Togo to a local translator, usually the pastor. And then the pastor would have to translate from Togo into the local dialect for the people in this village to understand. Uh, and these would change as we went down the road even 10 miles, it would be a slightly different language that would need to be translated again. Um, but it was lovely. And his wife, when we ate dinner at the very end of the trip, spoke French as she ordered. And as I was learning French, I can't help but speak in the accent. French is one of those languages that you can't just say words with your own Midwestern accent or wherever it is. You end up speaking with a little bit of French when you when you try to speak French. Un chat. You have this accent. Um, Betty. Betty was her name. John and Betty. Betty's Georgian French was just so wonderful. And we sat down and she calls the waiter over and is this like, Sivu play will have un, un boulangerie. It, I don't remember enough words to accurately tell it. But she spoke French with the thickest American Southern accent. And it was, it was gorgeous. It was a lovely thing. So we're in Burkina, and, and day one, we scout out a bunch of these villages. We find out what we're going to do first. We've got eight of them, and our plan is we're going to go out in the morning, do one village, come back, eat lunch at our school, our Bible school, and then go out in the afternoon and do a different village installing these systems. It didn't quite go that smoothly and simply, um, but the daily routine was really we get there and we help a village, and in exchange for helping them, they give us two live chickens. Now, we are on the edge of the desert. If you're picturing Africa, don't. This is this is desert. There are only two real animals that we see. Like, there aren't even really, like, birds flying around or anything. We are seeing sickly cows, which are raised by a particular tribe of farmers that roam across the country, and sickly chickens. That's it. But as a thank you... People give us chickens, and then we take those chickens back to the village, and the pastor of the village, the, the main, the head guy, uh, has three three women who work for him that all prep the food. And so we bring the chickens back. We hand them to these people. These are live chickens. We hear some awful noises, and then about 30 minutes later, we sit down. And the only food that really grows well in Burkina is peanuts. They grow a lot of peanuts. Um gold and violence and because of that that peanuts and because we were rich white people there we bring in uh rice we were able to afford rice and so our meal twice a day was chicken with rice and peanut sauce lunch dinner chicken rice with peanut sauce in the morning for breakfast they would have like sweet rolls and uh, bread and things like that. Um, the chickens, I don't think really laid eggs. That wasn't a common thing. So it's not like we had scrambled eggs or anything. 
um, breakfast was just some bread, maybe a little bit of butter and coffee. And for that reason, I typically skipped because piled on top of my anxiety about food in general was getting food poisoning while there and not being able to eat for two reasons. So kept it pretty cool, woke up, forced myself to eat a cliff bar so that I would eat because if I didn't eat, the downward spiral of anxiety would begin and I would be uh, out of luck. But this is our life. And it, it, it is told to me after like two days, we're driving through this village and we're in these white Toyota Land Cruisers, which are just these behemoths of machines that were able to carry all of our uh, all of the gear that they need to install these plumbing systems and all of our camera gear and five or six people. Um, we filed, hired a local plumber um, and, and an apprentice to help us out and uh, to repair the systems once we're gone. We're trying to create these systems that are sustainable so that they don't have to be repaired by us each time. There was thoughts of like doing electronic solar-powered systems, but they just got too complicated. They needed something that was super simple that they could repair themselves. So... We're driving around and we're getting a bunch of dirty looks as we roll through this little town. And I'm looking out the window. We're taking photos. We're trying to capture this experience. We're shooting video. I'm, I'm there to film this process so they can make a video to raise more money to build more wells in the future. And we are just getting mean mugged by everybody. And it is clearly this, this town is an extra Muslimy town. And this little Christian church at the far end of it, uh, they know about it. And in Burkina, these white Toyota Land Cruisers are pretty much like the the cliche vehicle for Christian missionaries to drive. And for that reason, it is explained to me that we are somewhat of a target. And it is also told to me, um, as we pull over because there's a there's police on the side of the road and they have to come check our vehicle to make sure we're not bringing contraband or anything like that. Um, it is explained to me that of these police stops on the side of the highway, and you pull up and they're off in the, in the trees because, I mean, the trees don't grow right next to the road, so they're probably like 50, 60 feet off, and there's just like a cone in the middle of the road, and you know you got to stop. They've got fingers on the triggers, AK-47s. They come up to the car. Uh, they check John's license. They talk to him a little bit. Um, they look and make sure we've got just plumbing equipment and camera gear and off we go. Um, and it is explained to me as we drive away that about nine times out of 10, these police stops really are police and they really are doing good work. But about 10% of the time, it's just a group of terrorists who puts a cone out in the middle street. And when you slow down, they rob you. And this is what happened to the, the head pastor, who ran the school that we're staying at. It happened to him about three weeks before we got there. They stole his car. They took everything. They left him face down in the grass, gun to the back of his head uh, until they were long gone. And he had to walk until he found help um, several, several miles away in the desert, um, but lived, lived to tell the story. So this is told to me as we pull up and I ask our security, John, I say, John, what do we have to protect ourselves? Like, do you have, uh, I'm uncomfortable with guns, but do you have a gun? Like, what is, and he says, we are protected by the power of prayer. And that was a, a pivotal moment for me emotionally where I sort of had to switch over to a, a more of a surrender mindset. Um, and in the fight or flight mentality, I think fight, flight or surrender uh, became an option. 
And so we get to this place and I'm having an absolute breakdown because I'm just so certain that I'm going to die, that these people saw us drive through. Um, we've got lucky twice already with these police stops. Um, just my, it, it's time. It, it's time for bad things to happen. And they don't. We live. We make it. We don't get robbed. It's fantastic. Um, but it is not uh, without the cost of a lot of sweat uh, and a lot of anxiety. Now, in between the daily attempts to convert me back to Christianity, um, which I have never admitted to them I, I wasn't an active practicing Christian, um, but I guess they somehow knew that I needed to be preached to. And um, each time we got to one of these villages, we prayed with the church leaders. We went to church on Sunday. I think we arrived on Saturday um, and started work on Monday, but attended church at the, the school, which was a four-hour church service, which was just bonkers full of music and um, passionate screaming. It was a, a very fascinating, cool experience compared to most of my church experience growing up, um, albeit a little bit long. Um, but what started to, to sort of fall over me, the, the biggest emotion, in spite of being with this crew, was loneliness. Because not only am I missing my wife, my family, and, and the crew that I am used to shooting with and my habits and my support, um, but in addition to being evangelical Christians focused solely on spreading the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it turns out that all of these people are also what I will refer to as uh, spiteful, or maybe vengeful Republicans. And I don't want to get into politics uh, too deeply, and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, you know, paint with broad brush of what Republicans are or anything like that. But what bothered me was that they were spiteful Republicans. And so this is in November of 2018. The midterms are going on. These are all people that love Trump uh, and support his presidency um, and the behavior, I guess, that goes along with that in spite of this Christian message. But the two things, the three things that really stuck out to me um, were, one, when AOC was, uh, with, with her election going on, I believe it was, was her first, I, I'm not sure, but as that was happening, they're watching the news, little bits here and there, hearing it on the radio, uh, and checking in when we get little glimpses of internet, and they're saying like, oh man, I hope this blows up in her face and she just fails hard so they see what a bad idea this is. And to root for her opponent is one thing, and that's fine, that's politics, that's elections, but to root so outwardly for her failure is, is a different thing. And I found it to be such a contrast to this, this in theory, Christian message that we were spreading. Um, and then the other thing was something about Nancy Pelosi came up and they're like, oh man, that woman, they, I forgot what awful words they used about her. But then uh, one of them said like, oh, she even looks like a witch. And I was just so struck by how actively against these individuals they were not the policy not anything like that they wanted these women to fail and maybe they also felt that way about men um but there there wasn't an example to illuminate that at that moment um other than some obviously uh, musings about obama uh, that came up here and there 
Um, but the biggest one was the, during the midterms of 2018, this is when the, the caravan of immigrants was coming from Central America through Mexico to the United States. And it was this overblown, just Fox News talking point to scare people into voting against uh, anyone who supported immigration reform um, and instead just supporting the idea of building the wall. And they were talking about how, you know, these people are just coming to America trying to get away. And what what bothered me was that that caravan, when you zoomed out and looked at it, was a group of people who were persecuted in a country, uh, in countries for their religion, um, who it was hard to live because of all of the crime around them. They were just trying to raise families and do so in a safe place. And that was literally the exact same people that, that these guys have been flying to Burkina and to Mali to serve for years and years. People who are persecuted for their religion, who are just trying to make it by, who need to grow food. And there's places where that can't happen. And I was just struck by that contrast of we're going to dedicate our lives and our money to helping these people in Burkina Faso and in Northern Africa, but stay out of America and like, oh, these people need to go back to where they came from. And I was just really, really bothered by that. And so as that came up in other political discussions and they were all in this little echo chamber that I just could not be a part of, I, I became very quiet as the trip went on and felt an increasing level of loneliness um, each day as I had my chicken and rice uh, twice a day after hearing the chicken's life end. Um, but the last part of this story is the part that affected me the most, and that was the the amount of death in Burkina Faso, the, the absolute ubiquity of death is crazy and, and just an absolute culture shock to me. And these families, most, most families have eight or 10 kids if they can, because half of them die. Like the infant mortality rate is crazy there. There aren't hospitals. Um, there isn't modern health care. And it's just an accepted thing. And in the face of that, there is such joy and such celebration of life. And these church services were just absolutely beautiful to, to witness. And these people celebrating life while surrounded by sick and dying animals. And you, you drive down the road and there's just dead animals everywhere. And some of them are being harvested for their meat. And it is just a place where it seems like in spite of all the circumstances, there is an, an element of joy that is greater than anywhere I've seen before. And this is the kind of thing where I, I had, right before I, I went to Burkina, just redone our internet. And I was getting so frustrated with our internet speeds um, that I switched to get some fiber optic internet. And that was my big problem. That was, that was what was bothering me for a few days. And then I get transported halfway around the world and it's, it's a reality that I just cannot fathom. And so we finish up these well systems. We make it out alive. And our last thing that we're going to do is we go to sector 19. I think it's sector 19. Could have been 39. Could have been any number. I honestly don't remember. But the capital of Ouagadougou, uh, of Burkina Faso, the capital of Ouagadougou is split into sectors. And we went to visit the absolute poorest sector. And this is a place where due to the survival nature of of people out there if you have a family member who is born with a disability 
unlike in America or the developed world where you can find support for them, there's special ed uh, programs in school. If somebody cannot contribute to farming and and industry and supporting themselves and the rest of the family as they hopefully grow older, you just can't. You just cannot keep track of these people and help them. You cannot dedicate extra resources to just feeding an extra person who's not going to contribute. And so a lot of times these individuals are abandoned or even mercy killed. And then the same is true in, in Burkina. It was told to me that the Muslim women, when they become widows, they are often cast out of the families for similar reasons. But it, it creates a situation where you have these women who are excommunicated or murdered. And so a lot of these individuals f- end up, if they can, in Sector 19 or whatever it is. And we go there, and I can see my footage playing back in my head over and over. I've watched it enough times, and I will never forget it. But this place looked like a scene out of a movie, just absolute barren and and a hopeless landscape and we went to this church there um, where they were hiring people to work as farmers at this farm where they had built one of these towers as a prototype um, a couple years before and they hire these women uh, and these disabled people to work the farms and then sell the the crops at market and bring those crops uh, and and share the money with these people and so they give them this this second chance at life in a community where that is hardly guaranteed and, and it is an absolute privilege and so this is the last thing i see and we are we are leaving from sector 19 and we are driving to the airport to leave and we do and on the way out i am just crossing my fingers i've been absolutely overwhelmed with everything uh, I've been sleeping on a cot outside under the stars, woken up by cows grazing literally six feet from my head. Um, and I'm just at my absolute limit. Uh, and we get a flat tire. This in, in the bad part of town, we get a flat tire and we are trying to change it. And people start coming up and surrounding our truck. And John is nervous. Like everyone's sort of nervous. And it turns out that all these people end up helping to jack up our car and our jack wasn't tall enough and so we had to use two jacks one to jack it up and then put it on blocks and use another one on blocks to jack it up from there and it was just this beautiful instance of teamwork where these people who didn't know us had no reason to help us helped us and and it was just a a a beautiful little moment but we make it to the airport i have not died yet and I am for the first time as we're sitting in the airport being bitten by mosquitoes, which I'm like, man, if this is where I get malaria sitting at the airport waiting to leave, I'm just going to lose it. Um, But spoiler alert, I don't think I ever got malaria. Um, And so we board the flight and this is the leg where they had flown from France to Burkina. And so we still had to fly to Ghana out of our way by two hours and then fly the nine hours back to Paris. We do. I have not drank water that isn't double filtered in two weeks. Um, I have a life straw water bottle that I've been drinking out of and I have it has been diff- it has been impossible to chug water because I have to suck it through this straw that provides friction. I haven't been truly quenched in a long time. And 
as as we get to we finally land in Paris, we've got like a two hour labor. It's not a long one, um, but we're there in the middle of the night and all the stores are closed. So we can't buy a bottle of water. And I go to the bathroom. I'm like, I'm just going to fill up my water bottle for the first time with water that probably won't kill me um, where I can just drink out of the side of it and, and not die. And it'll be lovely. But it's water that is like the motion sensor activated and it's hot water for washing your hands. I'm like, well, well, there goes that. So instead I continue to, uh, to not drink and they had no drinking fountains in this terminal. It was the craziest thing. Um, and quite annoying, but so we make it on the plane, I get another tiny bottle of water and at long last I make it to JFK and say goodbye to these people who I am at this point, very eager to be apart from. Um, and I'm just, again, worn down. It's been from, from the airport to this point with all the layovers, with the flights, uh, it's been about 36 hours of nonstop travel of just before I've seen, since I've seen even what qualifies as a real bed there, um, it has been over a day and a half. I am, I have nothing. I've been eating trail mix and drinking tiny bottles of water, uh, that aren't cold and say goodbye to these people at JFK. And I get an Uber to LaGuardia where my flight home, uh, is leaving from. And the nice thing about LaGuardia is I have at this point, with the success of my business, gotten an American Express Platinum card, which is a lovely thing. And it provides me access to airport lounges. And so I am eager to go to this Platinum, because there isn't an airport lounge in the St. Louis airport. And for whatever reason, I don't often have time to sit in an airport lounge uh, at my destination. But I have like four hours before my flight takes off. I am absolutely beaten down and exhausted. And I make it to this Centurion Lounge, this American Express Lounge. And I go in, nicest people run on the front desk. Uh, and Mr. Hodley, please come in. They can see I'm just a, a weary traveler at this point. And they were like, you can sit down. We've got couches over here. We have free food. We have a chef that prepares food every day. Um, get yourself some water. And they're like, you don't have to watch your bags here. Um, we'll keep an eye on it for you. So if you want to sleep on the couch or anything, feel free. And I am just crying with relief. Um, I get a glass of water and I absolutely chug this thing. And then I chug another um, for the first time in, in weeks. And... I'm starving having only eaten trail mix and you know, these meager meals um, that I'm eating hesitantly for fear of food poisoning uh, for the past two weeks. And so with my last bit of energy, I stand up and I go around the corner uh, to the chef where he has just prepared today's specialty, which is chicken and rice with peanut sauce. Um, however, there's also a piece of broccoli that he gives to me. Um, so it rounds things out a bit differently than it had been for the past two weeks. So that was my experience at Burkina Faso. And other than with a few people face to face, I have not shared this story with many people. Um, and I think somewhere in here, there is a story somewhere in here. There is some element of growth. Um, there is some happiness. I mean, fast forward to what, seven months later and I'm holding my, my son Luca for the first time and, and life becomes a, a level of amazing that I had never anticipated, but there's something, there's something in there for me. And so if you hear this story, if you made it this far through and you have any thoughts about what was good, what was bad, I'm genuinely interested, especially if there's a way to tell it that excludes 
the loneliness and the republicanism uh, and the constant attempted conversion to Christianity, um, I think I would be interested in that. It's very difficult for me to separate those elements out of the story. Um, But if you hear something that resonated with you, I would love to know what that was. Thanks for listening. And if you've done your podcast episode, thanks for doing it. And I hope you're enjoying these and listening to them. And obviously, if you're hearing me say this, you are. Um, But I'm looking forward to more of these. Cheers, everybody. Mm -hmm.